So the year is 1962, and I'm a 20-year-old senior in college. I'm at a Christian college where we're in a singing group, and our singing group is invited to go from Santa Cruz, California, which is near Monterey, south of San Francisco, to Berkeley on a Saturday morning because there's a church having a men's gathering. And we sang, did our thing, and they did the men's thing, and then they introduced the speaker. And a Japanese man got up and he said, my name is Mitsuo Fushida. And on December 7th, 1941, I was Captain Mitsuo Fushida of the Imperial Japanese Navy. And I planned and led the attack on Pearl Harbor. 77 years ago, as we speak, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and that propelled us into World War II as a nation. But in Mitsuo Fushido's story, there's a Christmas story, and I'll come to that in a few moments. This Christmas season is what we call Advent. Advent's an interesting word. It, it, it means the coming, the advent of the nuclear age, the advent of the, of the digital age. But historically, Advent has come to mean this season running up to when we celebrate Christmas. So in these next three weeks, we are going to be having messages that focus that way. Pastor Derry will be here for the next two, but I get to start off. So the Jesus story begins. It could have been like Star Trek, where God the Father just said, well, why don't we do sort of a beam me down Scotty, and just bam, Jesus is there. But that's not the way it works. And there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the scriptures. It's really interesting because Matthew, the first one, he, he goes with genealogies. He's sort of the biblical version of Ancestor.com, okay? And then Mark, he just leapfrogs the birth. He doesn't even talk about the birth. He goes straight to the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Then John, he's got the eternal, the cosmic view. He starts out in the beginning was the word and the word was with So it's a 30,000 foot view and then he comes down to the cradle. What's interesting about the, the Jesus stories in, in the scriptures and especially the birth of Jesus stories is that it has like a dozen uh, concurrent storylines. This, this is a goldmine for Hollywood. I mean, you've got miracles and surprising babies. You've got census and taxes. You've got Roman Empire and puppet kings. You've got politics and religion in bed together. You've got messenger angels and you've got choirs of angels. You've got a road trip with a crummy hotel at the end. You've got slaughters of babies and refugees on the run. You've got traveling wise men and resident shepherds. I mean, it's got it all. It's got drama and tragedy and all these kinds of things going on. The question I have this morning is, how does Dr. Luke, that fourth writer, how does he frame the story? Well, he, he frames it like a doctor would. Where do doctors start? When you go see a doctor, where do they start? They start by saying, so, have you had this disease before? <laughs> like, or did your dad have this, or your uncle, or something? You know, th that personal history piece is huge in order to be treated effectively, okay? So I'm on a flight from Washington, D.C. to Chicago some years ago, and I collapse on the airplane. I, I, I collapsed. I hate it when I do that. And uh, I, ha I had felt a little ill, and I got up and went to the bathroom in the back. And the next thing I know, I'm on the floor waking up, and a flight attendant is saying, Sir, can you hear me? 
It turns out I had a gallbladder attack. I didn't even know that I had that. They fixed it later, but I spent two days in Lutheran General Hospital in Chicago. And on that first morning, the doctor came in and stood at the foot of my bed, and he said, so, Mr. Vogt, here you are, and um, give me a little background. Tell me a little. I said, well, you know, my parents, my, my, my mom is 93, and my dad is 89. They were a few years apart. And I said, so I think I've got a, I think I've got pretty good genes. And the doctor looked at me and grinned and said, maybe they got them all. <laughs> I'm saying, what, what kind of a bedside manner is that? But the point is that, he, that Luke provides the connective tissue, no pun intended, Dr. Luke provides the connective tissue of the personal stories of the main players, if you will, in how the story unfolds. And Luke, the first chapter, is a long chapter. It's like 80 verses. Now, he didn't write in chapters. We did that after, but it's long. And there are two pieces of one story unfolding in those 80 verses. So let's start. The, the point is, one of the points, context we need to understand is that Israel as a nation is embedded in religious systems or vice versa. So they see their lives through, the, through a religious lens of temple and synagogue and priests and rituals. And that's where the story starts. Luke, the first chapter, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the, the, the line of Aaron was the priestly line. And they were both righteous before God, Zechariah and Elizabeth, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years, like this, okay? Just so you have that frame of reference, all right? So God, in his interesting ways, because the, the title of my thoughts today is The Ways of God. One of his ways is that he uses whatever is available to him, I think, as a platform for getting his message out. And in this case, it's the institution of the priesthood in this particular instance. Verse 11, and there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel on the Lord, of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Which in scriptures is the natural reaction to angels showing up. People get the, you know, bejeeber scared out of them when an angel shows up. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son huge thing and you shall call his name John which is fascinating because in tradition you wouldn't call them a different name than the father he would have been Zechariah but he said you'll call his name John and you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he'll be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and that last part and you can there's there's another section in the story that describes that because there was a, a whole class of people in the culture at the time called Nazarites and Nazarites took certain vows much like a priest might take like in the Catholic Church he would take those vows my thought about this part is that he says your prayer has been heard your wife's going to have a son and you're an old dude that's not in the Bible. I just said that, okay? And I'm thinking, how long has he prayed that prayer? 
I mean, that wasn't just last Wednesday that he prayed that prayer. That's a decades-long prayer. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I don't know if the atmosphere in the, in the room changed at that moment or if the tone of the angel changed, but this is what the angel says. The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news about the boy. And then he goes ahead and gives them some bad news. And behold, you, Zechariah, will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Verse 26. This is a different part of the story. Same angel, different person. In the sixth month after that, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. So this is the royal line. You got the priestly line and the royal line. You got an old guy and probably a 15-year-old girl. And he came to her, the angel said, and greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. There we go again. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Well, that sounds like, like the same question. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So she's not struck dumb. He is struck dumb. And we'll come to that in a moment. And behold, your relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Mary were probably second cousins. In her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then this this tagline, not a tagline, I consider this the fulcrum of the text, the place that balance or the catalytic statement. For nothing will be impossible with God. We're talking about the ways of God. This is a baseline. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, two sons will be born. John, the son of Zechariah and, and, and uh, Excuse me, Elizabeth, he will be John the baptizer. He will be the first prophet in Israel in 400 years. He's a wild man who dresses funny, eats crazy stuff, and comes out of the desert, right? His message is the kingdom is coming. He's the herald. He's the opening act, if you will, for God's plan to redeem the world. And Jesus comes. He's the deliverer. He says the kingdom's here. The moms are related the boys are born six months apart. They will both die as young men in their early 30s. By, in today's language, they would be millennials. And they were both executed by the state. And you say, and, and those are the ways of God? Really? God works that way? Yep. With finite, flawed people who are open to him. Because through that, nothing is impossible 
for God. Dr. Luke illustrates this fact with three storylines. You've got Zechariah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you've got Mary and Joseph, and you've got Zechariah and Mary. Next week, Pastor Derry is going to speak to the last half of Luke 1 and talk about Mary and Joseph. This week, Zechariah and Elizabeth, two people that God trusts, few, few street creds, really, few worldly credentials. And if they had them, the old guy would have the creds. She's just a 15-year-old girl in a Middle Eastern country at that time. She wouldn't have any, really. But they both have this thing called character, and they're trusting God. I once asked somebody in Washington, D.C., when I was working there years ago, how many of the leaders here on Capitol Hill do you think are, are following Jesus? It's a, it's a crazy question to ask. That's not a good question, but I asked it. I don't know. And, and, and my friend, who was a senator, said, I don't know, Dick. He said, but I think I know quite a number of folks who are appointed in the right direction. When you're pointed in the right direction, it's one of God's ways. When you're pointed in the right direction, you become part of God's way for redemption and restoration. You get to be part of the team, if you will. You're a player if you're pointed in the right direction, apparently. So here you have Zechariah and Mary at first contact. Zechariah is struck dumb and Mary isn't. And the question sounds similar, but the angel explains the angel explains why this happened to Zechariah in verse 20, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Later in this chapter, Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and Elizabeth responds this way in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, six months along, leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Ultimately, both Zechariah and Mary believed. Mary believed early on, just this winsome 15-year-old. Zechariah is the old dude, maybe, I don't know why. But anyway, it, so, so she, her, her gestation period for a baby was nine months. Zechariah's gestation period for belief was nine months. He could not speak for nine months and I, I have this, these kind of crazy thoughts when I read scripture. How did he explain that to Elizabeth? Like when he, he goes back, he said, when the service was complete, he went home. And, and she's saying, so how was your day in the temple, honey? He's going. And I don't know if it was a combination of Pictionary and charades and maybe writing in the dirt on the floor in, in Aramaic that he's trying to explain to her. We got some stuff going on, and it, anyway, so that's kind of where I go sometimes. So here's the point. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ordinary people. You say, what's an ordinary person? Well, like a normal person. I mean, like standard, common, like me. Most of us are standard. Not many of us are kings or queens or whatever. Paul says, you know, not many princes, not many rulers God uses the ordinary folks, people, this book is full of ordinary folks, shepherds, fishermen, old people, young people, men and women, boys and girls, simple lives and open hearts toward God. Why? Why just regular folks? I have a thesis, I won't say this is absolutely correct, but my thesis would be that when he uses somebody ordinary, 
You know, if you got somebody with a 348 IQ, you can say, well, that's because he's so bright that he did that or she did that. But if you have an ordinary person, God gets the glory. And that's, that's the point of the Christmas story. Glory to God in the highest. So when he uses us wherever we are in our ways, he gets the glory. Another of God's ways is that God's ways are unpredictable and often 180 degrees opposite of mine. It's going to stay up on the screen for a little bit here. You'll have time to write it down on the back of the bulletin. God's ways are unpredictable and often 180 degrees opposite of mine. 180 degrees. Used to have a friend in BC said, Foth, you come up with your best plan and turn it 180 degrees. That's probably the way God would do it. This is how Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, says it from the Lord. For my thoughts, Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, just, just there, are, there are scores of stories in these pages that shows that nothing's impossible with God, but his ways just are confusing. So here's, here's this general in the Old Testament called Naaman. He's not an Israeli general. He's a foreign general. He's got leprosy. And the, and the prophet Elijah comes to him and he says, I want to get rid of the leprosy. He said, well, go and, and dunk yourself in the, in, the, in the Jordan River seven times. Well, he's a high-class guy. That's a muddy river over there. I love that, that old guy who preached a message called Seven Ducks in a Muddy River. You know, I love that title. And Naaman goes and does that, and when he comes up the seventh time, he's clean. Well, that's, that's not only counterintuitive. That's like, it seems like it's weird. 180 degrees opposite of what I would think. Or the blind man in John 9 who's been blind from birth and Jesus spits on the ground. You've heard me talk about it. Spits on the ground, makes mud balls, put them in his eyes, goes, says, go wash it. I mean, for the medical community, freaks him out. Talk about hygienic. I mean, you know, what's that about? And, and, and he's healed because God's ways are not my ways. My tendency is to see God as my personal notary public. Those are the people in the bank. Some of you are notaries where you sign off on legal documents. I get my ideas, my plans, my documents all together and want him to validate it. And he's saying, Foth, why don't, why don't we try this like a little different than that? Why, why don't you come to me like first? Why don't we start there and you try to get a sense for what I'm wanting to do and let's go that way. God's ways are so opposite of mine. If you want to stand tall, kneel down. You want to receive? Give. You want to live life? Die to yourself. I'm saying, how do you get your head around that? You don't. You get your heart around that. That's revelational kind of stuff. When all seems lost, God shows up in situations that seem impossible. I have a cousin who now lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and he and his wife for many years were in a group called Youth with a Mission. And back when Eastern Europe was still communist before the wall came down in Berlin, they sensed they were supposed to go from where they were through Hungary to Germany to open a coffee bar in West Berlin. They got their visas, passports ready, got their tickets, get on a train, they get 50 miles into Hungary at night, and guards come through, check their visas, said those are wrong, put them off the train in the middle of the night, take their tickets, and here they are standing on a train station platform, they and one other friend... 
and they don't have visas and they don't have tickets to West Berlin. And they joined hands and prayed on the train station platform and saying, God, we don't know. This is an impossible thing. We're just trusting you here. A little while later, a young Brit came up and said, I think I found where we can get some visas. And they got visas, but but they don't have tickets. And they only have three American dollars. And so what they did was to get in line because trust is doing what you can do, not what you can't. And so they got in line and they get to the ticket agent and they put down three American dollars and said, three tickets to West Berlin, said it in German, I guess, and she just shook her head. And Carol was standing to the side, and about that time, a door opened, and a woman, well-dressed woman, walked across, walked right up to where they were, put money down, Hungarian money on the counter, and apparently said to the ticket agent, three tickets to West Berlin, and turned and walked out. And Carol tried to grab her, said, I couldn't find her, she disappeared. And my cousin David, I had him tell me the story like three or four times. I said, are you lying to me? Is that you just make that up? Or we? He said, no, Dick, and I'm not sure I've ever seen an angel, but I think they may be Hungarian. <laughs> the, nothing is impossible with God. Read the stories. Nothing is impossible with God. That's the last point on your book. That's the tagline. Nothing is impossible with God. I love the first verb in, in this book. It's a Hebrew verb, bara, that means created. In the beginning, God created. It means to create something out of nothing. Something out of nothing. I can create something out of something, but he creates something out of nothing. By definition, God can do anything. By definition, he's God. He can do anything. Unless he's a God of my own creation, then he's a wimpy, puny God, and he can't do anything. You say, but I have no outstanding skills, really, or I'm not gregarious, or I'm hardly any scripture, or I've done dumb stuff, or I have too many failings. That's precisely where God wants to walk in the door. I'm too old. I'm not in the right place. I'm, I have no experience. I'm damaged. I'm scared. I have too much hatred. Mitsuo Fushida, the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, hated Americans because he had been told that they tortured They're captives in prison camps. His plane took 21 hits from flak before he got back to his carrier. He almost died several times during the war, and in 1945, he was supposed to be in a town called Hiroshima on June the 6th, and he was called back to Tokyo, and he wasn't there. And then they sent eight observers back in to assess the damage, and he was one of the eight. Everyone who went back died from radiation poisoning except Mitsuo Fushida. Along the way, he had met one of his co-flyers who said that he had friends who were in prison camps and they were treated humanely. The attack occurred in 41. In 1942, a flyer by the name of Jimmy Doolittle led a squadron of planes, bombers, off of an aircraft carrier and they bombed Tokyo just to show that Tokyo was vulnerable. None of them came back. They either died or were captured by the Japanese. And one of those was a guy named Jake DeShazer. Jake DeShazer spent 40 months in a Japanese prison camp. And he hated the Japanese because of their brutality. He was tortured and beaten and all of that. And he hated them. He said, if I could find the guy who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, I would slit his throat. And a Japanese guard one day gave him an English Bible. And Jake DeShazer came to faith in a Japanese concentration camp. 
what happened when Mitsuya Fushido at the end of the war, Douglas MacArthur said, you need to testify at the war trials. And he heard about some missionaries by the name of Cavell or Covell, who had been executed by the Japanese in 1943. And as they were getting ready to be killed, they said, could we say a prayer first? And they asked a prayer for forgiveness for their captors and what they were doing. And it so touched his heart that he was sort of open. He started to be pointed in the right direction. Jake DeShazer got out of prison, came back, trained as a missionary, I think at Seattle Pacific University, went back as a missionary to Japan. And one day, Mitsuo Fushido in 1948, was walking off of a train, and there was a guy there handing out tracts, and one of them was a tract about being a prisoner of God, if you will. And it was written by this guy named Jake DeShazer. And Mitsushita came to Jesus. And in 1950, Jake DeShazer and Mitsuya Fushida met, and for the rest of their lives traveled the world talking about the God who can suck the hatred out of your life because nothing is impossible with God. The question is, am I pointed in the right direction? That's the question. Because when I'm pointed in the right direction, like Zechariah, even if I'm a little skeptic, or if I'm like Mary and I'm very open, the impossibilities in our lives get a different lens on them. There's an old... There's an old chorus that we used to sing all the time. Don't sing it much anymore, but I, I kind of like it. It goes like this. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. Why don't you sing it with me? Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible, and he will do what no other power can do. Where the world sees obstacles, God sees opportunities. So here's Zechariah, struck dumb. Whenever I read scriptures, because I was a stutterer as a boy, and you know I've told you I was a stutterer from age 5 to age 28, and w whenever I read about stuff in scripture where somebody has a speech difficulty, like Moses, who was a stutterer, or Tower of Babel, where their language has changed, or the day of Pentecost, where they got new languages, or, or somebody like Zechariah stuck, it, it always sort of strikes me. So Ruth and I are 24 years old and we're doing a church plant near the University of Illinois in Urbana and I can remember standing out in a stubbled cornfield in the middle of winter looking at this acreage where we're going to try to build a little building and I'm thinking to myself, it's impossible. I mean, I'm a stutterer, I'm going to be a pastor, really? Those are going to be so, so long. I mean, you know, just, and, uh, and I was green as a gourd, I was just beginning, but eight but 12 years later when we left and there were 850 folks and hundreds of universities, students had come to the Lord. God was saying, nothing is impossible with me. 16 years later, I'm president of this little college and one day a young man, a student makes an appointment. He walks in, he's a tall, good looking young man. He says, my name's Jason. And he, <clears throat> he actually didn't say it that way. He said, my, 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 my name's J 
Jason, President Foth, and I, I, I stopped by to just, just, just tell you that we're, we're, we're similar. I said, really, how's that? He said, we, we, we both stutter. He went on to tell me his story about he and his twin brother being savagely beaten and abused when he was a kid, so much so that at age 25, which he then was, his brother still didn't speak. And he spoke with this, not just a stutter, but profound difficulty in shaping words. He told me his story, and I said, Jason, I'm going to speak in chapel in a couple of weeks. Could I call you up and just have you tell the whole student body that? Because he had said, I feel like God called me here to this college so, so that I could be a speaker. I call him up on the platform. He tells them that little story. I said, so what are you doing to help yourself move down that road? He said, well, I'm, 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 I'm taking a class at the community college in, in pu pu public speaking. And we, two weeks ago, I had to give a pr pr presentation. And I, t I, t I told the teacher that if, if, if I could re re read scripture, that I didn't stutter when I, when I read scripture and she said I could do it so in a, in a public community college I got to I got to read the scriptures about Jesus and he looked at our student body and said and you you, you can't, can't, can't do that because you do, don't stutter <laughs> I said so what do, you, what do you want to do with your life Jason he said I, 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 I want to be a I want to, I want to be a chaplain. I said, where? He said, in a nursing homes. I said, do you, do you do that now? Or are you? He said, yeah, I, 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 I go and practice and I, I go and I speak and it takes a long, long, long time, but, but they can't, can't leave. <laughs> and he paused, he paused and said, Besides, they can't, can't hear me anyway. <laughs> I get that. Nothing is impossible with God. Ruth told me last night after I... I haven't told this. I don't know that I've ever told this story. In 40 years. But she told me afterwards, she said, I was in that chapel service. It was powerful. You could hear a pin drop. Because the world would say, well, it's impossible. You can't possibly... God says, watch this. You say, do you have any like newer stories besides World War II and 40 years ago? <laughs> About a year before last, I got invited by a friend here who's a college professor at CSU. She and her husband are both CSU profs and they're pointed in the right direction. She invited me to come speak to her business class on relationships, which I did. You don't talk about Jesus. But a year later, I get a phone call from a young man saying, I understand that you're a pastor and I have a question about God. We met at Starbucks and he just said, I need, I need meaning in my life. I grew up with religion, but I need meaning in my life. How do I get there? I said, well, why don't we just have an open-eyed prayer? You don't have to close your eyes. It doesn't say you have to close your eyes. So let's just, so sitting at Starbucks, Jesus was introduced to somebody turned in the right direction because nothing is impossible with God 
It is the way of God to take my human state, my frailty, my limitations, what I offer, and put it on like a glove for his glory. I would like to challenge this on this Advent Christmas morning in this season to one more time choose to hear and believe this day that nothing is impossible with God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this moment of time. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your spirit in this room. With their heads bowed and no one looking except the Lord and both, I guess. There may be some here this morning who are saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit like Zechariah. <laughs> I, believe, I believe in God, but I, there are moments when I'm skeptical. I would, I would fit that category. But there may be some here who say, I've been around this stuff, but I am a skeptic about God. But something in me this morning says, I don't want to be a skeptic. I want to go all in and be a believer in him. And as I close in prayer, you just slip up a hand and say, please include me in that prayer. I'm a skeptic, but I don't want to be. And you just lift your hand up. And let me see your hand. Yes, 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 yes. I see you. Yes. Yes, you may put your hand and I see you. There may be others of us here who say, you know, this week in my life, there's a peace in my life that I see as impossible. I don't, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get through it or it's going to work out or anything's going to change. But I'm putting that on the table this morning and say, please include me in your closing prayer. You say, I've got an impossible thing in my life, but I'd like you to pray for me as we close. Just lift your hand right up. Let's just see. Just That's right. Lots of us. Yes. Thank you, Father, that you are the God who overwhelms skepticism with your life. And you're the God who smashes through what we see as impossible from our side. You see as an opportunity for your name to be lifted up. So we put those things before you this day and thank you for the privilege of doing that. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.